This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. This is the beginning of Plato's Cafe with myself, Thomas Cordrell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson, Alexandra Heller, Nicholas and Cerise Howard. On tonight's show, we are doing a very special show all about Mad Max. We're going to look at all four films in this iconic Australian franchise, finishing off with the latest instalment, Mad Max Fury Road. But first, let's go back to 1979, where it all began with the original Mad Max. Josh, tell us about the first film in the series. Mad Max 1979, the film that introduced the world to Max Rokotansky, one of the greatest names in the history of cinema. Look, I'm going to keep this brief because we are going to be pushed for time tonight, but I do want to make a confession off the bat, and that is, I think Mad Max is my favourite Australian film of all time, and it holds up remarkably well. In fact, watching it again this week, I was struck by just how nuanced and complex I think the film is, and very much ahead of its time. The one thing I did want to flag, and I'm not going to bother going into the details of the plot, because you should have seen it already, if you haven't, after the show's finished, race out and grab a copy, is the way in which the film, I, I felt, was underscored by this sense of liminality. The entire film, both in a, in a cultural, social sense, and also in terms of uh, Max's identity. Because on the one hand, you have uh, a social scene which is both crumbling and giving way to road gangs and biker gangs and you have the institutions of of law and justice and the police which are crumbling and on the other side of the coin you still have a number of people going about their day-to-day business holidaying going camping kind of just living out their you know middle class working class existence and i actually read a piece this week by a guy named stephen rowley who describes this film as mid-apocalyptic and i think it's a perfect Mm. description of capturing that sense of the way in which this film tonally is caught in this almost cultural Tipping point. And I think that is mirrored in the character of, of Max. And that's what I found so fascinating about this film and Gibson's performance is the film is really about a guy who is trying desperately to reconcile, on the one hand, clinging on to the, the, the scraps of family life and holding on to this possibility, while also repeatedly being drawn back in to his, I guess, obligations as a law enforcement member, knowing that it's crumbling. And I found that tension and the way in which the film repeatedly shifts back and forth between that so completely in, in chanting and engrossing and people think of this film as a vengeance narrative but i think it's worth reminding the audience that the vengeance aspect the justified violence really only happens in the last 10 say 15 minutes of this film and you don't really get the sense of cathartic release that you typically do get with vengeance narratives in many ways because the violence at the end of this film resolves or try reconciles this dilemma it's underscored by an an acute sense of tragedy in the sense that this the possibilities that Max had for holding on to the family life have been stripped away and even though he gets his vengeance there is this underscored sense of of absolute tragedy and the loss of his potential identity at the end of this film and it, and it just ends abruptly i think it's a wonderful wonderful well, i'm going to call it a masterpiece look absolutely it's astonishing and i think that um sorry alex i'll, I'll let you jump in in a second <laughs> i was just going to very quickly say i think that's a really important point to make about a very important film it is a tragedy because in this film he's grappling with the fact he's losing his humanity i mean he even says to his superior i want to quit the police force because i'm starting to enjoy this too much and the, his officer actually says we need heroes like you it's a great kind of uh, uh, foreshadowing of the theme music from the third film, we don't need another hero like Max. And so, yeah, absolutely. This is the destruction of the self reflecting the destruction of society in this first film. 
I love how you finish off there, Josh, with this idea of him losing his identity, but he's also, of course, gaining a new one. We get all the way through the film. It's like he doesn't seem very mad. Is he mad? <laughs> Everybody else seems a bit mad. And it's, of course, in those last moments where we understand he, he adopts the name Mad Max from. Um, and I love that shift from one identity to another, and it's made quite explicit even in the name of the film itself. Yeah, look, it's um, he is definitely one of the saner people populating the, the strange, as you say, actually, Josh. Yeah, sort of mid-apocalyptic. Uh, is that the term? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's yes, nice. Yeah, really I like it. Uh, this this odd universe and uh, some of the performance styles of the the other people in there. It's, it's such a peculiarly Australian mannered style of acting that. Uh, it's clearly influenced a lot of 80s cinema from Australia. Uh, we get all of these sort of scumbag-type characters sometimes played by... Let's, I think of someone like David Argue in Razorback. This is really over-the-top, hammy but sinister, strange, grotesque performance and fashions, which we, we see a lot more of in Mad Max too, where they really go overboard. And it's um, they, these people already seem to have jettisoned humanity, as we understand it. They, they seem to live for nothing other than very peculiar cheap thrills for uh, throwing their head back as they drive crazily with a, a partner in tow for making animalistic howls at the the sun, the moon, the elements, all very animalistic. Like They've already become, or certainly heading in the direction of the tribalism that is so uh, rampant in the later films. I wonder how much the, the depiction of the outlaws in this film is a response to some of the counterculture around at the time, because they do get very kind of primal and a really perverse form of free love. I mean, even early in the franchise, in this first film you start to get the idea of sexual slavery uh you know there is a, there is a scene where you see a woman kept on an, on a chain and and, and this, this idea of this kind of perverse counterculture i'm not necessarily saying it's a conservative film by any means but that seems to be where it's drawing a lot of inspiration from from that 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 movement at the time the law enforcers seem no less perverse either i mean they're very leather aren't they they're they're very very leather but opening scene there's a bit of free loving going on out in a paddock and one of the cops is just lining his gun up at them just uh seemingly for his own amusement not necessarily to take a pot shot at them but i mean what's going on it's 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 that thin line between the good guys and the bad guys actually you you mentioned the aspect of voyeurism that, that is framed in the opening the other thing that struck me about this film particularly the score from Brian May is how influenced I felt it was from Bernard Herrmann's scores for Hitchcock and quickly those those abrupt zooms and those those almost zip pans to to eyes is such a Hitchcockian trait as well it's this strange fusion of of like the western the suspense film the psychological thriller I mean there are so many genres that I think it's a credit to Miller how well he fuses them into a, a really fascinating coherent narrative I am um had the pleasure of revisiting all of these films recently. I sat down and did a marathon just before seeing Fury Road. And I, I watched the first film with a, a very dear friend of mine with a couple of bottle of wines. She's a social worker. I recommend you do this. If you know anybody who's a social worker, sit down and watch the first Mad Max film. It's a remarkable experience because she was saying, This is ice. This is ice. I see this at work every single day. And at the time I laughed. I thought this was a whimsical, kind of clever observation until I saw Fury Road with the chroming. And, it, and I was chilled. It's like fantastic dystopia or something else. It's really fascinating, you guys, just talking about this idea of like a crazy world and maybe it's a little closer to home, you know, that idea of that mid-apocalypse. You know, this, this dystopia is not that detached. 
Yeah, it feels like it's a few seconds in the future. But what was the Max Headroom? You remember the TV series Max Headroom, which I think drew a lot of inspiration for Mad Max, saying it's set one minute in the future. I mean, you've you've very much got that that kind of feeling with with our Mad Max. Um, and, and, and there's quite a strong dynamic within these gangs as well. That they're not all sort of one uniform body either. There's quite a, a number of strong personalities. And just one of the details I just really want to mention because I love it is that first opening sequence, which is one of the most sublime action sequences ever like not just in australia like ever when they're chasing the night rider character who is full of bravado in that moment when he realizes he's up against max and he's met his match and he just starts crying and it's really chilling and you realize that this max guy is a real badass i love that grant page did that big stunt at the start the stuntman grant page did that really famous stunt with the interceptor goes through the camper van i think yep. he did that with a broken leg he broke his leg on the way to work that day or something. And uh, Sheila Florence, um, who's Auntie, Auntie May, she had a broken leg as well. She, turned, You know how she's limping at the end? She turned up to work. She tripped over in a rabbit it became hole. A, It becomes a theme because then Max uh-huh. injures his leg as well. Um, but she turned up to work in plaster. <laughs> it was amazing. Our, our first warrior woman, if I may be so bold. Yeah, well, you do get an early echo of that, don't you? She's very much a warrior I, I woman. I feel very strongly that the, um, yeah. the, the, warrior the woman. older warrior women, especially yep. again in Fury Road, are very much flagged by by Auntie, Auntie May. And that's a general statement we'll make about the franchise now. All these films kind of exist on their own. You can actually watch them as single films on their own, but they do tie in beautifully, more from a thematic point of view and an iconography point of view. There are these beautiful themes and ideas that flow throughout them, and it is really exciting watching them, watching them all uh, flow together like that. This is Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. If you're listening to Plato's Cave, you're in 3 Triple R, you're with Thomas, Alex, Josh and Cerise, and we are declaring our love for the amazing Mad Max franchise. And here we have number two. I'm going to lead on this one. I think this is my favourite one, but boy, it's hard to choose between one and two. And I think what's great about these films is how different they are from each other, yet they complement each other beautifully. It's like Alien and Aliens, the Terminator and Terminator 2. You've got the small very raw film and then the kind of the big Hollywood film and they both work beautifully. Can I throw in Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2? That's what I was thinking. That's another one. Mad Max 2 is interesting uh, for a number of reasons. It's part of, uh, it's a collection of the really successful Australian films that came out in the 1980s that adopted this so-called classical Hollywood model to gain international appeal. It was quite a deliberate strategy. Other films of the, the period included The Man from Snowy River, which was very much a western, Crocodile Dundee, which very much was a Screwball comedy, even films as late as Strictly Ballroom. I think we're very deliberately following what is seen as sort of a mainstream genre model, but filled with Australian iconography. And in, in the case of Max, it's you know it's the generic convention of a western, but you've got even more of the first-rate action, and it's just so just so Australian. But I think the really interesting point to make is that. The success and the appeal and the accessibility of Mad Max 2 owes a lot more to how much George Miller was influenced by the research that Joseph Campbell did. He, he was a, a, class, a very famous, I think he's a mythicist, I think is the title he, he, he gets. He's a guy who looked at what is known as the hero's journey, these reoccurring stories that have come all throughout culture. And it kind of provided, the, 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 you know, this kind of idea of the basic hero's journey is the blueprint for so many action, fantasy, science fiction and western films. And as I say all that, I realise... Mad Max 2 is all of those things. It's an action, fantasy, science fiction, and western. So Max is the archetypal, alienated sort of outsider figure who helps a community 
in need, but it's out of desperation rather than goodwill. Because he's his character, as we've established at the end of the first film, is a broken, bitter man. He's got a moral code, but he's out to look after himself. And I think what we see in this film is the start of this journey of humanisation. I don't think this is a revenge narrative. I don't think the Mad Max films are, are a revenge narrative. It's actually about Max trying to find humanity again. And I think you get a hint of it beginning in this film, which is then explored a lot further in the third and the fourth films, so different degrees of success. Um, look, I love this film. Like the rest of the franchise, it's all about cars. It's the car culture that's at the front. Miller has spoken about Australia being a car culture as opposed to a gun culture. And already in this film he's introduced the idea that guns often let you down or they're often, they're often empty. They, they're often, they often cause more harm than good to the person holding them. And this film even goes even further with that idea of sexual slavery, which you were talking about appearing in in the first film but this is a film where that kind of that idea becomes more part of rather than sexual violence it's more a sort of this sadomasochistic imagery that you sort of get with with the with the marauders and this idea i suppose of a new kind of tribal order that's out there in the wasteland versus these people trying to start a, a new community Look, actually, what, I, I hadn't seen these films in the longest time, and watching Mad Max 2 just yesterday, I was struck by how queer the film is. I thought exactly mm. the same yep. thing. Yeah, three, three, um, four for four. Four, four, yeah. Um, I mean, this went straight over my head way back when, um, but this is fairly contemporaneous with other pop cultural phenomena like, uh, say, Frankie Goes to Hollywood or uh, Judas Priest's Turbo Lover, which I think really took a two lot from... Two classics there. Yeah, two classics there. Or, or um, the, the garb adopted by Motley Crue even, or these trashy uh, L.A. rock bands of the time. But especially the figures in this film, this particular henchman, uh, Wes? Wes, is that his name? Vex. Mm-hmm. Wes. Wes, yes. And he's got a, a golden-haired lover boy who just rides on the back of his bike everywhere they go, and uh, the latter's passing is a cause of great distress to um, to it. And, and uh, I, you know, he's wearing this extraordinary leather harnessed bondage gear, very much from sort of gay subcultures. And I thought, now where did that come from, George Miller? Um, as I, you know, that's that's probably still of a pretty underground culture way back in the day. And I, I understand that with the first film, he very heavily tapped into bikey culture, and there are a lot of actual bikers and extras from the set of Stone, uh, that great Australian exploitation biker film from the seventies, utilised in the I cast. That's a great film, yeah. In, in Mad Max One, but where did that cross over with the gay subculture? And there's some dots there that I haven't yet joined. That I wonder if anyone else here can shed any light on. I was thinking on on this same angle. I don't know whether I can shed light, but coming in um, to this queer idea on a, on a less, I guess, sexually performative level, what really struck me on a recent revisit to Road Warrior was the feral kid, who I, I forgot the, uh, the end of this film ends with a, a male voiceover, which we find out is the, the feral kid. Watching this film, I totally forgot it was a male and I, I, I didn't know that it was a male or... I, I didn't identify it as a male or female character and I was quite conscious that the film really at no point lets you know that until you get this male voiceover at the end. So gender... This, this queer stuff that's yeah. playing out even outside of those sort of subcu- subcultural markers through costume and especially the kids voiceless throughout the mm, film. It's a mute, a mute child um, and very, very neutral. I mean, the glorious uh, 
Androgyny of the mullet. Let's, let's, let's celebrate. That is so, words I didn't think I'd be saying tonight. There was a couple of things that really struck me about this one, and watching it back to back with the original. Firstly, the almost the lack of any exposition about the cultural scene in the first one, and then the second one is all exposition, but only for the, the preface. And its preface is filmed in pan and scan, and it's almost as if George Miller saying, "Okay, this is for that certain type of audience across across the oceans," and then we're just going to get it over and done with, and then just launch right into the. the the narrative proper and I thought that's such a in, in some ways that's such a clever way of dealing with exposition just putting it in there in a rapid face kind of montage and let's just leap back into the into the story and of course it was also because this was the first film that overseas audiences were seeing um, uh, we didn't mention in regards to the first Mad Max they actually redubbed the Australian voices out and, and dubbed it into um, with American accents and American um, uh, idioms I think but the other thing that struck me about this and it's also almost that sort of mirroring and evolution from the first one is that in the first Mad Max the bad guy or the, or the one who's reserved for the kind of prime um, position in terms of the violence act is not actually the leader of the biker gang in the toe cutter. It's, I think it's Johnny the Boy or... Johnny the Boy? Johnny the Boy, yeah. perhaps, the younger mm. one. And we get a same sort of situation here. It's not the humongous, the big bad who takes that prime position, but it's the, it's the Wes character. And I thought that was such a curious take on, you know, because normally you typically is the leader who has the kind of climactic shootout or confrontation at the end. And this is sort of almost suggesting that there's something else, there's something more personal that Max has an attachment, not to the leader, but to one of the underlings that gets replayed in both of these films. Miller has said that um, Max and Wes were very much conceived as almost flip sides to the same coin, and I think that hmm. there's a real dynamic between those two characters that's so important to why this is such an amazing film. Well, it's sort of as if these main characters, let's start introducing this idea, they represent the rule of the patriarchy and and it's it's a rule that's getting away from them and and running riot and and Wes does go off kilter and sort of disobeys the role of the symbolic father he gets literally chained up in this film he kind of gets yeah reeled in because he's gone too far i sort of like the idea that this there is a sort of monstrous patriarchy i think in the in this film and certainly the fourth film that has the feeling of it it's it's starting to self-destruct itself. I would flag, you mentioned the Western uh, mm-hmm. earlier, and I think that that's really important to flag here in relation to uh, Fury Road in particular. Um, Miller was very influenced by uh, Akira Kurosawa in this film, and I think he very consciously was aware of that that legacy of Kurosawa films being adapted into Western, so Sturgis's Magnificent Seven, Leone's um, Fistful of Dollars, both obviously being inspired by Kurosawa. This, I mean, it's a Western, it, mm. and, and Miller has said that Fury Road is a Western on wheels, and, and one of the things that really struck me with Fury Road is it very much feels like uh, Tom Hardy's Max reminded me a lot of John Wayne at the end of The Searchers, this this sort of redundant hero, this, this idea of masculinity that, that doesn't really fit in the world anymore, it isn't really needed, and I think that the roots of that lie in the Road Warrior, I think we can really feel that that early on in 1981. Well, he's a decoy. The yep, community saying, use yeah. him against his will. Yeah, he's completely redundant. And then again, mm. like the first one, it's underscored with this sense of the tragic at the end. You know, Max has no place. He's tried to find, like you mentioned, Thomas, mm. a glimpse of humanity that, to restore his hope. Although, how you could have any hope after what they do to his poor blue heel? I mean, you know, oh, that, that was puppy. I'd forgotten about that. In That's fact, harsh, both, in both of the first two films, <laughs> these are not dog-friendly films. No. Yeah. And uh, the, 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 well. Uh, the, 
moved to CinemaScope, I think, is quite telling in this as well, uh, which uh, was held through to the third, and I must surely have been... Uh, I'm trying to see Fury Road, actually, seems like three films ago. I watched all the Mad Max, other the first three just yesterday. Took a toll. It tells you I'm now feeling rather bleak about our prospects as a species. Um, but, look, yeah, the, all this, this archetypal stuff is there, front and centre, and the Australian outback... Um, you know, I, look, we were going to broach this at some point this evening. This whole lunatic men's rights groups uproar about uh, Fury Road. Um, oh, I've already forgotten what my tangent was. My leap that uh, took me there. But Can I just jump in? With, yes. In terms of the cinematography, um, Mad Max, the original <laughs> one, was the first film shot on anamorphic widescreen in Australia, and then was followed four years later by The Cars That Ate Paris. Peter Weir decided to use the the same um, camera work. And what wonderful cinematography by David Egby on that first film too. Did that help jog any memories? Uh? No. No, it didn't at all. No, that's just tan- men. tangent upon tangent. The cars at Eight Paris definitely gets a little uh, tip of the hat to in the fourth film. Um, I mean, the, the reflexivity of these films actually is, is quite something which we'll talk about more, I'm sure, when we talk about the third one shortly because there's something there. Oh, hell, let's just jump to the chase. That's sax solo. Um, sax so is underpinning, yeah. But the, Referring she, to the sax solo, of course, in the first film. Yeah, well. Max's yep. wife, um, when we first meet her, she's sensitively, <laughs> sensitively um, blowing. It's a really yeah. odd scene, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> preparing us for the Lost Boys, I believe. Yeah. One of the greatest sax scenes of all time. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see the, saxopho- the saxophone player from the Lost Boys go up against the guitar player in Mad Max Fury Road. That is... Uh, live the dream. We can kickstart this. We're on air now. We can do like Look at the tease that we're doing for, for Mad Max Fury Road here. We should keep moving, but I think it's fair to say Mad Max Fury Road, the film that probably ties in most to from the franchise, is the, the, the second film. Yeah, definitely. In fact, the second film ends with this amazing tanker chase, which is a bit of a homage to stage coach, uh, the John Ford film Stagecoach, except I think the tanker chase goes for about two minutes longer than the chase in Stagecoach. And I love the fact Miller went, what was the best thing about the franchise? The tanker chase, let's do a whole film out of that. You're on Plato's Cave, we are talking the Mad Max franchise. Uh, we'll be looking at the um, maybe the, the, the more curious entry in the franchise in just a moment. Three, triple, ah. Oh. Beyond the Thunderdome. Alex, you have thoughts on this film? I do. I have thoughts and feelings, and I shall discuss them both. <laughs> of, of the four, I believe it's fair to say that Beyond Thunderdome is the one that has received the least love, um, which f- it, there's a tension because I think for a lot of us uh, of a certain generation, this was the first one that we saw. Mm, uh, the first one I saw, yep. Certainly a lot of promotion behind this film. It, you know, it had Tina Turner in it. It was Mel Gibson was a really, really big star kind of rising to even bigger stardom by this stage. It had hit songs, I believe. All of those things that you want your blockbusters to have. But um, I'm, a, I'm a defender of this film. I really, I think there's so much great energy in this movie. But even, even as a defender, I think that the, the, the middle section of this film does dip. Uh, it, is, it is a bit wobbly. It almost feels like a failed Terry Gilliam film in places for me it's um not saying all terry gilliam films are failures you know what i mean um it's it's a strange little film but the one thing about it cerise is picking up from the um mra goons that you touched on briefly that i'd really like to to go with here i'd actually like to turn my discussion of um thunderdome into a bit of a loving for the person that we just heard sing tina turner i don't think that she gets enough credit for what's going on in this film now the mra guys a lot of the um claims have been is that this is you know the idea of furiosa and a kind of feminist mad max has completely come out of the blue 
I really disagree with that. I think we, as we've already discussed, in some way we can go back to the first film and we can really see these strong mm-hmm. warrior women. In the second film, there's an amazing uh, there's warrior woman. Called, she's called the warrior woman. Virginia Hay, warrior woman, yeah. who has a headband that we see repeated yep. in Tina Turner as Auntie Entity. Such a good headband. In, it's Such a, a ridiculous a, name. An iconic headband. An iconic headband. Ridiculous name. This is the Man Max franchise. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, look, the bar is set high or low depending on how you look at that. But yes, I Auntie Entity. Come on. A, a little, a little his, historical context, I think, is really useful to thinking through the casting of Tina Turner. I've heard that um, Bette Midler was also up as a possible contender um, for the role of Auntie Entity, which would have been amazing, but a very different film. Interesting on that queer idea, that, we, that stuff that we were talking about with Man, uh, Mad Max 2, actually. Um, so Tina Turner was really a really important point of her career. It was a 1983-84. She had a massive career comeback. So during the 70s, she divorced her husband and musical partner Ike Turner. Um, They were like R&B superstars after what is by now quite well documented uh, documented history of domestic violence. Turner's comeback in the 80s was real phoenix from the flames stuff um, as far as the public imagination and the rhetoric that surrounded her stardom went. Um, She was seen as as a survivor, a legend, and a strong warrior woman it was this real sort of tough woman moves on and survives these horrors of patriarchy she was beaten and she was abused but she's okay and here she is smiling she she smiles so much in thunderdome and i love it i just love it i I really think that there's a direct line between what's going on with um tina turner's casting her specific casting in thunderdome and what we see literally 30 years later in in um furioso in particular but also in just furioso and there's even a line in this film where she says i came from i can't remember the actual line but she, she talks about in the film the character how she came from a really horrible background and she's made herself into this amazing woman that she is now and runs barter town yeah look for what it's worth i i think the first 40 minutes of beyond thunderdome is fantastic i love the idea of again this new civilization that that's built even further than the one we see in mad Max too, um, but yeah, it, it, it's still it's still a bit shaky. There's still a lot of injustice and dodginess going on. I like the idea that they've come up with a new energy source, and now water is the greatest commodity. And look, yeah, I mean, again, it's stylistically different from the second film, but the second film was radically stylistically different from the first film. All these films build upon each other, and I think that the sequence in the Thunderdome is wonderful. It, it does fall apart when it becomes sort of Caravan of Courage, Gilligan's Island, uh, Goonies. I love the Goonies, but not in a Mad Max setting. But I think that first 40 minutes is really good stuff yeah the other two films i'd throw in there that reminded me of is uh, return of the jedi because the uh, the, the ewoks, children yeah. of the oasis may as well be ewoks and it also feels in terms of its white savior complex a little bit temple of doomish as well you know the, indy comes in and then has to save the poor children of of the desert you mentioned evil dead before and i've heard people described uh, beyond thunderdome as the evil dead three of the mad max franchise oh that's really good yeah. actually that oh that's pretty bad on <laughs> um but you're right there there are some really fascinating aspects to this and one one of which and i want to come back to tina because how could we not is the racial diversity or lack of racial diversity in these films particularly in terms of indigenous characters and i'm going to flag that because it's something i want to come back to in terms of of fury road but finally we get some racial diversity with tina turner and the other thing about having this matriarchal figure running barter town is coming back to the ending that unlike the first two the ending of this film is, is utterly different. It doesn't crescendo in a climactic act of violence or act of retribution. And that, I think, is what makes this film really fascinating in terms of the role of the woman and, and, and how she's treated and even flagging that for how George Miller will then uh, um, evolve and his approach to gender for, for Fury Road. I think there's a direct link between what happens to Max at the end of uh, Beyond Thunderdome and, and the kind of thematic angle that 
that they progress on, on on Fury Road, absolutely. Curious film, but uh, a joy to see Frank Thring, uh, and probably one of his <laughs> later roles, I should think. Uh, just keeping things good and queer there. I mean, it's, it's just Frank Thring, that's just his queerness incarnate. There's a, a couple of really interesting moments of reflexivity in this. One, uh, in the Thunderdome itself, when Max is pitted against um, one half of the Master Blaster, well, very much a, the larger half of, of Master Blaster, and he is introduced uh, explicitly as the man with no name. Uh, as if we needed any further reminding that uh, the, the homages to Westerns, to, to one of the great pasticheurs of Westerns, Leone himself, is, I mean, that couldn't be more explicit. Another thing, I mean, we, you know, we're speaking a little disparagingly of that whole business with all these kids who speak this peculiar pigeon and Max sort of, uh, they think he's their saviour, he will probably find that they're his. Uh, but there's, there's a message stick they pass around and it looks exactly of widescreen proportions. It's a message stick into a nice rectangle and I don't think it's any coincidence that it is of not quite cinemascope proportions necessarily but it is uncannily sort of 16 to 9-ish. Why is that? It's knowing. Tell me that's not knowing. It's the knowing knowing and who knows yeah. the knowing knowing. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to kind of flag one more thing at this and this is a comment made by um, film critic and scholar Adrian Martin and he described perhaps against the grain of criticism that Beyond Thunderdome is unquestionably George Miller's one and only art film. I'm not sure I am entirely on board with Martin on this one but it is fascinating and his, his justification is in part the fact that everything in the narrative is acted upon him and he's the, he's the object as opposed to the subject of the narrative. And I thought well that's an interesting take on it. It's also very episodic in, in, the, in its structure which I guess again links it to that kind of art, art cinema trajectory. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, 30 years ago, wasn't it? Not, not as bad as maybe some of us r- remember. I, love um, it. I don't think any of us saw what was uh, coming up next 30 <laughs> years later. As we mentioned, Frank Thring, of course, is in this film. He was a wonderful patron of Triple R as well. Well, you are quite simply the nicest person in the world, aren't you? So why haven't you subscribed, you miserable bastard? (laughs) Bless. Mad Max Fury Road, the film that we're now going to indulge in for the last 15 minutes here on Plato's Cave. Cerise. Fourth film in the series, but where is it positioned in time and indeed in space? Uh, this film was to, well, really, because this film was to have been shot in Australia, and Broken Hill didn't follow the script and went and flowered richly owing to rain and the it whole thing was the green place. Became the green place, yeah, and uh, the whole production was transported to Namibia. Um, and, and George Miller has been quite coy about just when this film's action might take place. It might be between the events depicted in Max's 2 and 3. Uh, we are in a, a true dystopia, um, but one with some law and order of a, of a sort. A, a strange character named Immortan Joe, played by Hugh Keysburn, the toe cutter in the original Mad Max, rules supreme over uh, a rather bedraggled, shaggy populace, uh, dishing out water to them seemingly uh, at... Uh, well, actually, there's a whole very peculiar ecosystem here involving lactating mothers um, in order to pride... What sort of milk? Mother's milk? Mother's which, milk. Which 
which is what keeps him going, but somehow water is the, the, the real key to the economy here, and he occasionally lets it come out to the people in a great flood and, and advises them not to get addicted to it, which is, you know, this is a pretty harsh, cruel world. There's a whole uh, subset of the population who seemingly exist in a between-life-and-death state. Is it a disease? Quite how did they contract it? It seems pretty grim. Uh, equally, those people seem reliant upon yet another, even more uh, oppressed subset of the populace who serve just to be organ donors or blood banks for them, which is uh, reminiscent of a few sci-fi novels and films of times gone by. Um, Max, uh, in a voiceover at the very beginning, lets us know that basically he exists merely to exist, merely to survive. Uh, He is a haunted figure, haunted by all the people he's let down in the past. We see this in frequent sort of subliminally uh, long shots, montages of faces of, of harried children often. He's not a happy person and he's, his lot in life becomes very quickly uh, worse at the beginning. He he's winds up a blood bag to um, a young man played by Nicholas Holt who thinks he might yet be able to reach Valhalla. It's really interesting. There's this mythos here that uh, those who serve Immortanjo well might in the afterlife be rewarded with um, wonderful things, reminiscent of so many cults and religions of the current day. But interestingly, referring explicitly to one of a Norse background here. And I wonder if that's deliberately arbitrary so as to avoid any um, possible issues surrounding current day events and cults of personality and so-called death cults. Um, This film has the most extraordinary chase sequences I've probably ever seen, not least because, extremely refreshingly, much of it is real. Uh, Look, I haven't seen the Fast and Furious franchise. I understand there are at least 74 of them by now, and I don't know if there's a single actual car uh, crash in them, so to speak. I mean, I know that CG has become the norm for special effects practices in big-budget films, but here so much of it is so appreciably real. There is so much peril on screen. So many wonderful aerial overhead shots to reinforce the reality of it all, and it is breathtaking and relentless. And uh, that's not even touching on all of the wonderful business that is so outraged the men's rights groups out there, which I'm sure any one of you three would love to sink your teeth into by way of a throwaway to you. I'm already thinking, can we just dedicate all of next week's show as well to a continuation of our Fury Road Gush Fest? Because I'm really looking at the clock going, we're going to run out of time and we're not going to you know, get past the tip of the iceberg here. I think this is an extraordinary film. Um, I think it, probably the best way to describe our reaction to this film is it's a, it's a confrontation with the sublime. This is a visceral feast. This is, a, a, you know, this is sound and fury, but this is signifying, this is signifying so much here. I love, I love that the Charlize Theron character, the Furiosa character, is front and centre. In fact, I think my, uh, Max really occupies a sidekick role here, and I am completely fine with that. Uh, she, I think she's extraordinary. I think this is one of the all-time extraordinary performances. What she does with her eyes and just with, with the gaze and with the look in this film and the way Miller films her, particularly when she's covered in black paint around the eyes, is is just wonderful. And I think one of the best ways of describing this film and the, the energetic thrill, the hyperkinetic thrill, is it's just bodies and machines speeding through a landscape for two hours in an electrifying visual background. I mean, that, that sequence when they go into the, the hellstorm is one of the most remarkable, visceral 
palpable adrenaline. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just <laughs> making I'm just mentioning adjectives. I'm actually now. quite excited by the way you're describing this film because <laughs> you, I think it's a hard. This is such a visual film. I mean, these are one of those films where it's very hard as critics to discuss it because it's so exhilarating and 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 purely cinematic. It's gorgeous. Those aerial shots, um, those shots that are there from the very first film, sort of the low angles looking up at the car. So when those you know all the trucks or the bikes, so when those revs happen, you feel it through your bones. Um, it just looks amazing. It's so exciting. But look, on top of that is just this amazing uh, cast of really strong women. And I think it's awesome that Mac... I mean, I think this has been creeping into the franchise as well. I think it's been there more than we may have realised. Max has been increasingly subservient while some of the um, other characters have taken a more prominent role. And, you know, this is not Max rescuing the damsels in distress. This is Max tagging along for the ride. And he's great, and he does some great things, but it's all about Shalish Theron and that ensemble of remarkable women who are taking charge of their lives and, and telling this monstrosity of the patriarchy in the film where to go. I mean, they tell them verbally and they tell them with their fists and their boots and their cars and their guns, and it's glorious. I, I had a really emotional experience watching this film. I loved it so much. But, it, but aside from my pleasure watching it, somebody on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was, my apologies, but they described it um, as feeling like what it must have been like to see the great train robbery in 1903. And it's so hyperbolic, but such yep. a perfect... That's how I felt. I just sat there in, in, in shock. Firstly, from the, the physical experience of watching this movie, but also on an on a ideological front, I was devastated. It's like all that idiotic, moronic, frat boy nonsense that I have had to sit through for the, for the past God knows how long. They had a choice. They didn't have to do it. You can have women in a film. It's okay. Look at this one. This one's working really well. I felt, A, ripped off that nobody... You know why? Why is this the first time that I'm feeling like this? And and secondly, like we are living in a post furiosa world, like we are living in a post furiosa cinematic landscape now. Things are different because we will see those kind of dude bro films differently mm. now. We will see that it is an ideological choice mm-hmm. to make films. Mm-hmm. About, about those kind of guys. We don't have to do it, and we don't have to put up with it. We can have other kinds of movies. I think the seeds were sown. That's a good metaphor for this film, actually. But I think there have been films building up to this. I mean, I think the, the first two Terminator films and the Alien films and even oh, things absolutely. like Hunger I mean, Games and even Gravity, I mean, I think we've been edging towards this, but it's never been so overt as, as, as it is in this film. Well, just speaking specifically about Charlize Theron, mm. um, I, I hesitate to bring it up because it was so universally bagged, and I'm not defending the film at all, but Eon Flux, the film adaptation of Eon Flux is closer to Zardoz, I think, than it is to the original uh, animated series, but that is a film about a female fertility rights superhero. I think it's a really interesting film to watch in relation to what, what happens with Theron uh, in both of those characters. You know, she really, there's, there's something that links both of those characters together that she's interested in. I was just going to jump in or come back to this idea of bodies. I mean, the fact that she's an amputee with a mechanical arm, the, the, the cross-section of body types that we see in this film is remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to come back because I, I flagged in the, in the previous discussion of Beyond Thunderdome. We do see an Indigenous man at the beginning of the montage in terms of one of the people that Max is haunted by. And I think, you, I think and I'm not sure if it's been written, but I'm sure there's been questions raised about the absence of Indigenous uh, Australians within the Mad Max franchise, given it's so iconically Australian in the outback. But I think you could argue, and maybe Miller has, I'm not sure, uh, argue that this in this post-apocalyptic wasteland, the Indigenous culture has been completely erased, and the appearance of that man, even though it's just such a small kind of token nod, may reflect that kind of uh, the absence of that society. That's the vibe I got, yeah. A British man being haunted by Indigenous Australia. 
Mm. Full stop, move on. Yeah. There's a few interesting things about the particular dystopia that this film presents. Uh, oil and water are the, the great uh, rationed items here, though oil seems... Uh, it's not, I mean, everyone drives these cars like lunatics. You'd think they'd be a little more uh, cautious with their, their, their waning reserves. Um, but another thing is that in this future, the knowledge economy uh, seems to have failed as well. There are no telecommunications technology seemingly evident. The, the landscape is void of pylons or any other signs of, of means of people to actually communicate in any reasonable way. Hence, with these huge battle scenes, the, the, um, the head, the, you know, Mortan Joe, is there front and centre as well. It's, it's re- a reversion to full tribalism, really, and, and the leader, perhaps rightly so, is expected to do a lot of the heavy lifting and is up there alongside the What's his name? The Dwarf Warrior. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the man with the electric guitar that it's spews flames. Oh, God. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just trembled when that happened. I just want to say, yeah, water and petrol being the two resources that we've seen in the other films, back in this film, the other resources that are precious in this film are blood and breast milk. And this is a film about a society that's trying to control um, uh, the human body and quite specifically the female body. I mean, so many ideas that are really vibrant and being discussed in our culture now they've been there for decades and decades and decades but you you, you get the sense that it, this is increasingly becoming part of the mainstream conversation uh, it's all front and center this is a film about men trying to control women's bodies and the women saying hell no you could uh, flag this in terms of something i read last week and that is i think the um there's been a court ruling in the states that opens up the ability to challenge is it roe versus wade so yes the argument about women's bodies and women's rights is 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 not in the background. This is front and centre, and this film very much taps into a current political debates about that. And it's not frivolous. I mean, there's actually a really nasty moment in this film that um, I think reinforces just how destructive this this kind of uh, the, 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 yeah this mentality has. I mean, this is not a flippant film. It's not throwing away these. It's not throwing around these themes casually. It's not using important themes as sort of a jumping off point to excuse action set pieces. This is a film that functions as an amazing action film with really intelligent, progressive, possibly even subversive uh, messages front and centre. It's just a triumph on so many levels. There's a tonal urgency to it that works both thematically and uh, tonally. It it works with the story, it works with the car chases, but it works with these bigger... Uh, yeah, thematic ideas that, that the film is addressing. Well, so I don't think it fails uh, by being, say, sentimental. It could have uh, ensured that all of the people we wish to root for, in this sense, uh, not just survive, but thrive and flourish. But uh, people are falling by the wayside all throughout these films. In fact, lots of the good guys, every bit as much as the baddies. And dogs. And dogs, yeah. It's the, it's the pathos. I think that's what, yeah. that's what distinguishes this as an action film from probably the last 20 years of action cinema, for the most part, I'm speaking generally, is that he knows when to stop, give the audience or the time to take a breath because you need it in some of these sequences mm. and inject a sense of pathos. And you have that in spades here, particularly with the female characters. I think we have to wrap up the show. We've got, um, uh, we have been talking about the Mad Max franchise. Mad Max Fury Road is on wide release throughout Roadshow Films. The original three films are still available on DVD, Blu-ray and digital download. Uh, Mad Max through Roadshow Entertainment, Mad Max 2 and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome through Warner Brothers. You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R with Alex, Josh, Cerise and myself, Thomas. Next week we'll be back with a regular show. But until then, we hope you have a lovely day. Oh, what a lovely day. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.